Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. Basic hip. This is episode 571 for the 20th of October 2021. Maria Schneider is a multiple Grammy Award winner and a recent Pulitzer Prize finalist in music for her 2020 double album Data Lords. She was last a guest on the jazz session a decade ago. To think that she hadn't yet released her 2013 collaborative album with soprano Dawn Upshaw and the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Winter Morning Walks, one of my favourites, or her shimmering, somewhat biographical record, 2015's The Thompson Fields, blows my tiny mind. Anyone who is lucky enough to work with or know Maria is aware that her attention to detail is meticulous her musicianship second to none, and her warmth and generosity immense. Here is our conversation, a real privilege and delight for a fangirl like me. Hi, and welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you as a guest today. Thank you. The last time you were on this podcast, you were interviewed by Jason, and that was in 2011. So I feel like we're doing a 10-year checkup, and it's just, it's very unfortunate that you're so unremarkable and not prolific, and to be quite frank, just terribly lazy. Um, <laughs> if only you had produced things that we could discuss today. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the absolute inverse is true. And we're going to be talking about your most recent album, the absolutely stunning Data Lords. And I listened to it in depth. I was a supporter on Artist Share, so I had access to all of the behind scenes, which I absolutely love, and I cannot encourage people enough to support artists, but on Artist Share to support Maria because the way that she rolls out all of her behind the scenes videos and the access to visuals, scores, audios is completely immersive and makes for that much more of a rich listening experience. Yeah, it's funny. I've been doing this since, uh, well, I think Concert in the Garden came out in 2003 and we started documenting the year before. 
And there are so many hundreds, thousands of videos now from all over these years with different players in my band. Now, two of them that have deceased, um, you know, where I'm discussing music and because every time I sell a score, a study score, or a, a score or scores and parts to a band, there's videos of me telling how I conducted, how I wrote it or whatever. It's an unbelievable archive of information now. You know, when I did it, I never, you know, I thought about funding projects and making people feel closer to the music, but it never really occurred to me that over time I would create an archive, which is really what it's become. It's so precious, I would imagine, both for you, but for also students of the music and lovers of the music and for anyone in the in the future who might actually for whatever purposes, research you, not in a strange way, not in a violation of privacy. Well, you know, it's, 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 you know, I even think about someday when I'm gone, you know, it's like people having some idea or insight how to perform the music or whatever, you know, I hope that it, it does that. So. I think it absolutely will. But to catch up listeners of this show who last would have heard from you directly 10 years ago, you spoke to Jason about your process of making winter morning walks. It hadn't even come out yet. And that was a recording you did with the soprano Dawn Upshaw and the Australian Chamber Orchestra. And you set Ted Kuz's just magical poems to music and Dawn sang them. I listened to that and loved that you told Jason at the time that you were seeking out some lessons from an old professor of yours to learn how to better conduct the orchestra and navigate the different approach to time that orchestral instruments have, both because of their nature, the way a string, you know, sounds as opposed to a trumpet with a tongue and a timing of the airities, but also because you just felt like you were communicating in this new world and you wanted to be the best you could be. That outlook to me not that I know you at all, but it sums up what I imagine your nature to be, which is creating, learning, seeking out new information. Is that accurate? I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, in that case, yeah, it was desperation, maybe. I, <laughs> so, yeah, so I sought out Don Huntsberger, who I studied with at Eastman. And, you know, am I a I mean, I'm not one of those people that's always studying scores and checking things out. Actually, not really. I'm I'm more a person who gets away from music to try to feel like writing music. You know, I don't listen to a lot of people listen to music to get new ideas and check out new things and then do it in their own way. But, you know, being inspired by other things that way. N not really with me. I I. I find that I'm more inspired by life or experiential things or, um, you know, something I encountered, something outside of music that makes me feel like making music. So I think that, um, yeah, generally, um, yeah, that's, that's more my mode of, of working, I guess. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think learning out of necessity is, still as good as you know learning for fun or yeah, seeking yeah. something out because you're like if I don't know this I'm gonna flounder yeah so you know I mean, it I, doesn't matter I, I think you know I'm, I definitely am a curious person and I love, love to check things out but I'm actually interested in other things as much as music you know like birds or you know I just 
I like today I was, uh, we were leaving and I, I have this big book about antitrust by Amy Klobuchar that I started reading and I said, oh, I would just love to have time on the beach to read these books I have, you know, and not that you know, a book on antitrust is normally, you know, beach reading, but for me it is, you know, so, so yeah, I am always checking things out and, and trying to learn things because I don't read much fiction. I'm much more into reading, you know, learning about something not that you don't learn from fiction, but you know, I'm, I'm more a, a, into the real world kind of thing. So I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, th I actually, I think you, I mean, not that I need to be proved right, but I think to some degree you did there because you are, it doesn't matter what, and it, it's almost irrelevant if it's music because the point is life influences music. And that's especially true of you. Your upbringing, I mean, I'll talk about it, but it's just a phenomenal thread that runs throughout your work. We were talking about band members of yours who are no longer with us and how you pay tribute to one of them, the, the wonderful trumpeter, Laurie Frank, and how your mm -hmm. dad, the way you talk about your father, and it's a common thread throughout all your albums. So they often say to musicians, you know, if you're not living, you're not going to have a lot to write about. And I'm sure it's the same for writers of fiction, certainly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wish I was a good writer because I have so many, you know, there's so many times in life where really strange things happen or you meet some character. And I think, man, if I was a writer, I would write about that. And they would, and people would say, how did she come up with that? You know, but it's like something from real life. Um, but yeah, I tell that to musicians all the time when I teach because, um, you know, music is, especially maybe now, you know, there's, you can, you can listen to anything now, I do, which I don't really think is a good thing necessarily. Um, but, you know, so many musicians feel like they have to check everything out and, you know, study, study, learn, learn, and you're in school and everybody's at a high level. And then you, they put pressure on themselves to make the rhythm more complex, the, you know, the melodies more complex, the harmony more obtuse, you know, and the music and more isn't always more. And sometimes I say to them, you know, it's like, you know, you, you can make yourself dull in a way by doing all these things. And I, I really think, you know, what you need to do is get out of the practice room, do something else, get inspired and come back, you know? Absolutely. Or go birding or get to the yeah. beach. Yeah, anything. and Literally anything, you know? Just have real conversations with people, which is also so rare Yeah. now, you know? Absolutely. Live in the world so that you can have it influence your work. Well, I mean, for people who do follow you on Artist Share or folks who perhaps know you in your real life, we know that you're an avid birder and a, a lover of nature. And as you said, you, you need that kind of respite in order to create and come back to the music. And it's lovely because, in fact, Winter Morning Walks, the poems that Ted wrote, just serendipitously, thematically, are perfect for you and many of the visuals and things in life that you draw influence from. It was released in 2013, so it came out two years after your interview with Jason. So it's eight years later. If you look back on that 
album and that project, working with Dawn, working with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. How do you see that work? Well, I love that album and I and I and I love that music. I mean, it's I'm not afraid to say it's good. <laughs> I think, you know, I like it for, for what my my uh, wish for was from it. And I it's funny we're talking about it now because this summer Renee Fleming wanted to sing it. So she so she just did it at Aspen and I was out there and it was just beautiful. And she had wanted to do um, it also just with a pianist. So I, with the help of somebody who works for her um, named Chasen Goldschmitz, uh, we made piano vocal, just a piano vocal version of the whole thing. And we just have to tweak a few things. And she sang some of them and it works really well. I mean, she she had asked me about doing it a while back and I, I was kind of dragging my feet because I Sometimes I'd think about it going to sleep at night and just think, oh, I don't know how to do that. But in the end, it's it's pretty beautiful. And we took on some of the pieces, Frank Kimbrough, who died, he had done such beautiful beautiful improvisation. So Chasen transcribed some of that. And we incorporated some of that in the piece. So he's credited and I'll give, you know, a royalty to his wife for that. So anyway, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really nice. So I'll be selling that through my site because I really want, um, you know, I mean, there are nine songs in win the winter morning walks. This is the Ted Kuzer uh, piece. Uh, you know, I think uh, it would be a great thing for uh, people to be able to sing in college, you know, or on a, on a recital, not even the whole thing, maybe just a couple of the songs or something. Oh, completely. I mean, I'm just thinking, oh, the, the ability for sopranos from, I mean, school and post-school, because it's such a gorgeous piece. And I'd imagine, oh, I'd love to hear Renee singing it, but I'd imagine in that context of voice and piano, it only highlights the kind of sort of magical, any moments that were sparse or that idea of the morning before there is noise that, oh, yeah, I got goosebumps yeah. hearing you say that. I, that's such an exciting announcement. You heard it here, Sopranos. Yes, it's the first place I've announced this. Um, and and uh, Ted Kuzer also, uh, I've become quite close with Ted and he's just so wonderful. I mean, I, I think we just have so much in common and one of the, I mean, we've written, we write back and forth and so many things that he's written are so interesting to me. Like he told me um, that he, he wrote a series of poems about things that were just within a short distance from his house. You know, he can find the most ordinary things and bring such a power to it through metaphor. Like he has one poem in Winter Morning Walks where he talks about a, a hay bale, you know, bound in sky blue nylon twine, you know, and he talks about it being all shoulders, you know, bound tightly in sky blue nylon twine, just so I awoke this morning wrapped in fear. And and then he talks, then he says, I, I'm saying the poem wrong, but he, you know, those, those little plastic red flags. I mean, so much of the imagery are things I recognize from the Midwest. You know, I don't even know what those are, but you see them, you know? And he says something like, oh, red plastic, you know, flag on a stick, you know, basically saying bumped over and propped up again and again, give me your courage, you know? And it's, it's that, that somebody can see one of those flags 
and bring such a sense of something that we all experience, you know, because in this case for him, it's the, he, he had had cancer and was recovering and, and full of fear, you know, and seeing that hay bale as a metaphor for fear and that flag as a metaphor for courage. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. I just, oh God, I love Ted. And I want to write more. So I th I'm going to try to write more songs um, this time for Renee on Ted Kuzer poetry. I, I said to Renee, I said, oh, am I a broken record? And she, she said, you know, he's your muse. You, you love him. And like you said, you know, it's like, she said, when I read this poetry, I, I, I understand it's exactly what you just said. It's a, it's a fit. So what am I going to do? You know, he's my poet. Absolutely. If it worked once, why not do more? And, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? But it is, it's a real simpatico. So it, it fills yeah. me with great joy to know that you've actually maintained that relationship in your personal life and that you're friends and please do more because it's so nice to hear you say how much you love that album because me and so many others just adore that world that you created. And um, I actually went out and bought that anthology of poems after being introduced to Ted's work through your album. So... I have a feeling a lot of people do. I always tell people you got to buy the whole book. I mean, there's a hundred amazing poems in there. There were other ones I wanted to do and maybe I will, you know, that the, the hay bale one I want to do. I just, at the time, I just didn't come up with the right thing. And, and there are poems from other books. So I don't know if the next one will have a theme or if it'll just be poetry by Ted, you know, I mean, there's a theme in his poetry because it's just him. You know, the theme is, Ted Kuzer, you know, it's just, it's, it all somehow connects. But the, the thing I was going to say about being able to say, if you like something you did, um, I, it's, I, I got a great example of that some years back um, that inspired me to not be afraid to say, if I like something and believe me, I'm really self-critical. So when I don't like something, Oh, you, you'll hear me just and people be like, man, ease up on yourself, you know, <laughs> but, um, and it, it was Yvonne Lentz. I was doing a project with Yvonne Lentz and we were choosing, he was in New York. So we were choosing the songs that we were going to have me arrange. And so I had really done my research. I already knew a lot of his songs, but I found every obscure song I could find. And, you know, and so then I would, we were at, at the piano and I'd say, well, you know, I was thinking, I really love Lumber Jameem. And he said, oh, yes, I love that one. And then he started playing it. And then I would say another song. And he said, oh, he said, that one is so beautiful. I love that. And, and, and it was, and I was just sitting there feeling such delight seeing him enjoy that music as much as I did. And, and, you know, when there were certain chord changes that I say, oh, you know, he would play it and you could just see the delight. And, and then he just stopped in the middle, you know, and he said, he said, you know, I feel like I can say that because I don't really feel like I write these. And, and I don't think he means, I, I know in a way what he means. He's, He's uh, he's working really hard, you know, of course, it takes a tremendous amount of work and sweat to come up with those songs. It's not like you sit there and then it just pours in you like, you know, it's like, <laughs> but there is a feeling and maybe it is, maybe it stems out of the imposter feeling that so many of us 
to such a great degree, so often feel like an imposter that when something great comes out, we never really believe it's ourselves doing it. You know, we somehow think that it's something else. And and maybe it is. I don't, we we don't really understand when things come together. I mean, I know I work things out and I it's math and whatever, but then there's a magic, there's also a magic that comes together where the math turns to poetry, you know, where the where you say, oh, this all fits because it makes me feel a certain way, or you know, and 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 the the technique dissolves away and it turns into intuition that's you know, I feel that way about Bach. I love Bach. It's so moving. His music is so moving, but it's also so mathematical. You can take it apart and look at it. And it's this intricate design. And so is nature. So is a tree. So is a seed. So is DNA. And so is everything. So it's, you know, anyway, that's why when I, at, at this point, if I like something and I think it's good, I'll say, yep, I think that's what, that one is good. I'll give you that. <laughs> do you do you have that similar feeling that Ivan has with your own work? I mean, aside from saying, I can appreciate that I did that, do you sometimes hear your music or reflect on it and think, I mean, that's great, but it kind of feels like someone else wrote it. How did it? it well, it always does in retrospect because I think it's like childbirth. You, you forget the pain. I never had a baby, but you know, just I've seen somebody go through that <laughs> or you'll go back in time. Like I, for instance, I remember just going back to my first album. There's a song on there called some circles named after a Paul clay painting at the time when I wrote it and I first heard it, I thought, Oh my gosh, that is just horrible. You know, I really, really didn't like it. And then I recorded it. And I remember at some point I listened back and just said, how did I do that? That was so good. You know, <laughs> so it's like a lot of the things, you know, you're so hard on yourself. And then years later you say, oh, I wish I could do that now. You know, what I'm doing now isn't good. That was better or something. It's, we can always find a way to torture ourselves. And and in those moments where you come up with something really great and you say, wow, that's genius. And then if two, later, two minutes later, you're like, I'm a complete jerk. I know nothing. <laughs>
on the topic of the now and not looking too far back, your latest album is called Data Lords. I had a, a long internal monologue. Would I say Data Lords or Data Lords or Data Lords? I say Data, but you I know. know. I know, but people will say, but is she putting on her fake American accent? Anyway, we'll say Data Lords. Oh. <laughs> and it came out in 2020, so super recent. Um, a double album with two themes represented the digital world and our natural world. And I, I Marie, yeah, I must add. You happen to have one right oh, here. So you can see the digital world and the, is it the cover? This was painted by a guy from my hometown. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's a cottonwood leaf. And we, we grew up in Cottonwood County. Anyway, back to. No, I, no, I no, no. This is the thing. But I also love how it's the digital world and our natural world. Very deliberate mm -hmm. word choice. And I really, I loved that. Very evocative of the two sets of music it's towering it's phenomenal so in 10 years i want to ask you to take stock on data lords like we've done on winter morning walks and it was a pulitzer finalist in 2021 and a double it won two grammy awards which so deserved and so lovely for you and i'm gonna circle in the words of jen saki i'm gonna circle back to this later so much of your work, and again, this has now come up already, which I love because you're authentic and you are consistent. So much of your work has been colored by your love of nature, a pastoral peacefulness, and evocative imagery of your upbringing in rural Minnesota. So for this reason, what I found so fascinating and exciting about this album, the offering of the digital world, kind of shed a different light on your work and also, as we know, on your state of mind. So can you kind of give us your synopsis of Data Lords, the facets, what propelled the concept, what you hope to achieve going into it, and if you feel that you achieved what you intended to express musically? Yeah, so I didn't set out to do anything. I mean, I... Um... But it was an odd set of circumstances, kind of like always with my music, you know, it's sort of, I tell people sometimes it's like Ouija board, you know, coming up with, you know, music and seeing what it becomes and, and actually using the music almost like a divining rod to tell me about my life, you know, and, and then later I say, oh, that's about this, you know, almost as if I had that idea before I did it, but I didn't, it's, it's like the music then you know, somewhere along the way says, oh, this is what this is. I feel this. Okay, now I'm going to use that to complete the music. And that definitely happened on this. But, you know, there were a few things. Um, one was, okay, so Thompson Fields was complete. I was just working on the last song when David Bowie came to me and wanted to collaborate. And I kind of panicked because I was um, going to be making the Thompson Fields that summer. I wasn't done writing the music, but I of course didn't want to say no to David Bowie, you know? So, so I said, yes. And when he came over, I mean, he came to hear the band. He was just delightful, really funny, really sweet. Um, not at all what I would have thought from just, you know, the stage presence, you know, <laughs> he was just so regular, you know? Um, and when he came over, you know, and he brought me the beginnings of something he, he was writing and he said he wanted it to be really dark. And he said he really liked my early dark music, things from my first album, the two pieces, Wurgly and Dance You Monster and My Soft Song, both pieces about monsters, um, which was an early obsession. 
And so in working with on this piece together, it started really, I started really having fun diving into that dark, edgy thing, which was completely the opposite of, of uh, the Thompson Fields, maybe except for the piece called Nimbus, it's kind of stormy, you know, but even that is kind of different. It's sort of dark. It's not, it doesn't have, I, I don't know. Anyway, so I, I was enjoying it. And also I enjoyed, like Nimbus is a very brooding piece. David's attitude that came out, um, that was sort of my attitude with those two pieces I wrote earlier, was kind of like, oh, this is fun. Let's do something really dark, you know, because I asked him, what could the piece, what do you want it, the song to be about? Like, what are the, could the words be? And he said, well, maybe, maybe vampires, you know, and he was so excited, you know, and I, so we really had fun making this intense piece together. and. So by the time I finished and I wrote him an email because when that came out, I think they first released it, I think in November. And I was just in the process starting to, I, I had edited, um, you know, we did the recording like at the end of summer of, and of, of my own Thompson Fields. And then we were editing and mixing and my head already was ahead into the Bowie, you know, the dark. And here I am mixing this pastoral music. And I, and I said to him, I said, I, this music is now feeling so mamsy pamsy to me. You know, I said, I feel like you've ruined me. And then he wrote an email back and he said, well, then my work is done here. <laughs> like, like I've, I've, I've brought you to the dark side. Now, now my work is done. You know, it was real. it was really funny. And so, um, but, and when I, then when I got like my first commission or something at that point, I started, I don't know, I, you know, I came up with something very dark sounding. And of course, at the same time, I've been really into this whole digital rights thing. And so when I was writing this piece, I'm like, this is like big data. This is like AI taking us over. This is, this is the digital world. This is, you know, nasty. And, and I had so much fun writing it um, that, that was Data Lords, you know, and, and also the other thing, David Bowie, the other influence was, you know, I was so scared and I'm always so scared. Like, oh my God, what if it doesn't sound good? Oh my God, I hate it. It's horrible. And, you know, the guys in the band always trying to bolster me. And it's just like, you know, it's such a tired thing that I do, but it's my MO, you know, and, and, um, and he said to me, Maria, he said, if, if the great thing in music is if the plane goes down, we all walk away. So whatever, you know, don't just have fun, you know? And so I, you know, did those things in Data Lords where the, I conduct and I go bump, 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 bump with my hands, like, you know, my fists just dropping and bouncing and the band just following me. It's like rhythmically not notated. And it was so fun, you know? And so then I wrote like another one, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, oh, I got to get that off me, you know? And, and I would be doing something, you know, outside or something. And I, or, or we went to uh, Japan and I got really inspired by the Kyoto garden, you know, and then I was inspired by this piece of pottery by Jack Troy. So the music was like all over the map, really all over the map. And then at one of my gigs, this, man, um, Justin Freed, who 
I really, really love, you know, he's, and he's been a big supporter on my records over the years. And I met him through that, through Artist Share, but we became friends and he, um, uh, let's see. Oh yeah. After, after gig, he said, you have to record this music. And I said, Justin, I, I don't know if I can ever do that to myself again, because it's so much work. And I said, also this music, it's so disparate. I mean, how do you put all this on an album? And he said, well, you make two. And I, you know, and I, I thought, oh yeah, I don't even want to make one album. Now you're saying I should make two albums. But then I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I started thinking about really what the music was. And it's the same thing with Thompson Fields. When I did Thompson Fields, I didn't have the theme of home in mind. I wrote the music and then all of a sudden I realized this music, almost all of it has the theme of home, which made sense considering certain forces that were happening in my life at that time. Like my dad died. I, I was spending more time in the country, which kind of brought me back to themes of home, you know, so it was sort of natural. Well, with this, you know, I think, you know, fighting my fight with the digital world and my fear about it, my anger about it, coupled with my need to pull away and sometimes just want to shut it all out, which, you know, before we started this interview, I was telling you the inundation of email and all the stuff, how it encroaches on our lives, the information, the everybody, you know, with the, on every site with the, you know, come here, like me, you know, whatever, you know, it's so exhausting. It does make you want to pull away and reconnect to what's essential and what's human and what's organic, you know? And so the, the music showed me what I was struggling with without me paying for therapy, you know? <laughs> anyway, that's a long answer, but it was a long process too. Well, exactly. And it's two albums, so all the more to talk about. So you bringing up your work with David Bowie and the, the song that you worked on with him, Sue, or In a Season of Crime, I had a question all formulated saying, that was so dark. Did that influence the... And you've just given yeah, well, it to me. Yes. Yes. And in fact, the, yeah. the grittiness, the kind of more electric, gnarlier, rockier side of Sue is, you know, all uh -huh. over the digital world and specifically the title track, Data Lords. Yeah, and, and the, you know, the timing was good too because Ben Monder came back into the album or into the band again and Ben has that side. And so it's like also wanting you to utilize him, Ben as Ben, you know, not Ben joint come into my world, but let me find my way into your world a little bit, you know? And, and so, and, and one thing I did on this album that was interesting, I, I don't know how much of it I even used, but, but it was helpful is I had a, a, a couple or maybe a few sessions with just a few people in my band, which was something I suggested to David that we would do for Sue. And it was very helpful. Get a skeletal group together to try out the ideas and test the form. Like how, how big should these improv sections be? And that was really, really helpful. And so I thought, I'm gonna do that with my music. And so I would experiment, you know, it's like, okay, Jay, I want you to play 
the bass with a stick and I want to hear what happens. Just slide your hand around, just go crazy, you know, just, and I just recorded lots of stuff just to get a new palette of sound, a new, something new coming at me. And, and it was really fun and helpful. So yeah, that, that, that doing that one song together really, um, yeah, shook me up in a, in a great way. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the broodingness, I mean, a lost world just broods like like there's no tomorrow, yeah. right? A world lost, not a lost world. Well, yeah, 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 whatever. It's close enough. Actually, I wanted to call it Lost World, but I think that was a movie or something. So then I was like, okay, a yeah. world lost. <laughs> yeah, I think I, it wasn't a Lost World, one of the Jurassic Park sequels. I think so, yes, exactly. So I couldn't, <laughs> Which I couldn't do that. takes us out of big data and takes us back into prehistoric, maybe yeah. happier times. That, back in the good old days. <laughs> yeah, when yeah, when T-Rex has roamed the, roamed the green earth. But um, yeah, a world lost, um, and I'll, I'm going to intersperse all of these throughout this conversation because it broods in the most delicious dark way, and it's such fun to hear that from you not that it hasn't as you said popped up on previous tracks you know a, a nimbus here a couple tracks there yeah. uh but it is lovely that david had that effect on you sue is phenomenal um the the version that came out on his i think it was 2014 the compilation yeah. so it's kind of lovely that you you carry forward a sort of bowie rock star effect into yeah it's, it was kind of hard not to i guess yeah, no. And I'm very glad that when you went to Japan, gardens and nature abounded and you thought, ah, well, you know, here's some other stuff. And it's two albums because it it's the very best of you, both sides. Hi there, a quick note about how you can support the Jazz Session if you so wish. 
This podcast is made possible thanks to listeners who enjoy these conversations so much that they become members over at the Jazz Sessions Patreon page. There are two tiers of membership, $5 a month and $10 a month. For $5 a month, you'll get these weekly episodes a day early, and you'll also receive a weekly mini bonus episode called Track of the Week, where an artist talks about a track of their new album, and you then hear the song in its entirety. For $10 a month, you'll receive Track of the Week, plus a monthly bonus episode called The Insider. The Insider is a spin-off series where I talk to jazz industry professionals about the work that they do, the musicians that they work with, and the music that inspires them. If you want more information, you can head to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join, and you can find out how you can become a Patreon member today. Now, back to my conversation with Maria. Maria, I wanted to ask you on the topic of big data because some people may not know about your very important and valuable activism in being outspoken about the perils of streaming sites, privacy, uh, the negative effect of specifically streaming that it has on an artist's ability to earn a living from their music, like the most sort of bread and butter, nuts and bolts thing. There's a fantastic interview you gave and I urge people to seek it out. It was on, it's on YouTube, it was at Newport Festival, uh, sort of impromptu, off the cusp thing. And look, I'm not very bright, but you explained it beautifully and I understood the premise. Oh, I'll have to go back and we'll see. Maybe I'll understand myself better. <laughs> Could you, and just, you know, just outline your stance on this, the sort of the important points, the things that you think people really should kind of take note of and mull over as we progress? Well, there's there's so many aspects. I mean, there's the musical part and then there's our lives, but I, the music foreshadowed, we as musicians and what happened with music and films and, and things like that was a foreshadowing of what would happen to all of us. So basically, you know, the internet starts and they realize that, you know, what what you want on the internet is the data. And how do you best get data from people? You have to keep them active on their computers. And how do you do that? You entice them with music and things that they want to watch and you give it for free. Or you create a site where other people give it for free and you as a platform sort of pretend like, oh, we didn't know really. Oh my gosh, they were sharing your music for free. Oh, we really want to help you. But in reality, they don't really want to help. It's exactly what they want because that's that's where they get the data. And so it basically um, destroyed us. I mean, musicians complained and then it was like, oh, the complaining musicians, you know, because everybody, of course, started wanting everything for free. That just all, you know, that's obvious that that's going to happen. And this was, you know, you know, Napster and everything. And then YouTube comes up with this idea. Oh, we'll put put ads on it. And then if there's an ad on it, you can get some of that revenue. Well, okay. First of all, it's it's not really sizable revenue for any musician, especially when you're talking about musicians in niche fields like jazz or classical or whatever. It's meaningless. It's 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 nothing. And and because the income became so little, you know, record companies were laying people off and everything. 
the income was so little record companies quit paying for most records. So now you got musicians funding their own records, paying for them, still being on labels because they want the label name, but the label isn't really paying for it. And there's no money coming back to actually pay for the making of the record. Far worse than the old days when the record companies paid for the records and most musicians didn't receive any royalties. Well, at least their record was funded. Now they're going into debt, right? And so then this whole thing becomes so pervasive and so all-consuming in the world that everybody wants to get their music for free in one place. You know, so there's YouTube, which is probably the biggest place where people get music. And then comes the competitor Spotify. So they say, we're going to do the same thing. You know, you can watch with it's ads or if you, if you don't want ads, it's $9.99 a month. Well, having most of the music in the world for $9.99 a month is never going to pay for the music when you think what we all paid when we went to record stores for a very small amount of albums. So, you know, financially, of course, it was never going to scale. It was never going to work. But they got the des desperate record companies to sign on to, and YouTube did too, for the, the exchanging music for ads concept because they were basically on their knees. And then Spotify offered those record companies, you know, who are also publishers too, you know, so they're kind of like getting it on both sides, you know, from, from the publishing and the record and everything. Um, so, you know, you got Sony publishing, Sony in records, you know, you got the whole thing. Anyway, um, they, they offered them equity in Spotify to hand over the catalogs and the musicians that are bound by contracts are like, you know, they didn't even know this and they're not getting a piece of it, you know? So it, it's all really ugly. And I mean, just to give people a concept of, and this is data from already a few years ago, so it's probably even worse now. But 10% of the music on Spotify is getting over 99% of the plays. And because you're paid according to how many times your music is played, that means that the remaining less than 1% is sharing, or, or the, the, no, the remaining 90, over 90% 90 of, of music is having to split less than 1% of the financial pie. In there is all classical music, all jazz, all, you know, there might be one outlier record, you know, um, but it's, it's the vast majority of music. And music isn't all created equal. My record costs $250,000 to make. That doesn't include the years I spent working on it and making it myself full time, especially that last year, working obsessively full time to the point of like really unhealthy, you know, it's like, like, I don't ever want to do this to my body and my mind again, you know, because it was so painful and hard work. And, you know, so should I have to have the same price set on my music as somebody setting up a couple mics in a coffee shop, doing a solo guitar singer song songwriter thing, or somebody making music in their bedroom electronically for spa music, you know? I mean, come on, the music has different, they may have an audience and, and our audiences are gonna be hugely different in size. Mine's a very tiny niche 
audience. You know, you can do very cheap music and have millions of plays because it's played in every spy or in the elevator. I know, I know a woman who's a, the wife of a jazz musician. She's making a lot of money on Spotify because they, and her, her husband said to her, just keep writing those vanilla chords because it gets played in the elevators and in the spas. And, you know, it's like, so, and they put it on repeat, you know, so this is just, it's all so completely absurd. And what it boils down to, and people need to look at it, is it's destroying the free market, you know, of us setting our price. And, you know, last time I checked, I live in, in a country that has a free market economy. Not if you're a musician. It's very hard to compete with your own website. The only reason I can do that is because I set this up, you know, early, like way before, you know, a lot of YouTube didn't exist yet. So I was already setting up my fan base and this loyal fan base. But I've had to put a few tunes on Spotify because anybody knew they'll never find me, you know? So it's... And, and here's the thing. I mean, this is now going more to the outer idea, you know. People say, okay, I'm getting the music for free. They're actually not getting the music for free because they're giving their data. And people are not completely, and our government too, has not woken up to the fact that what we pay in literal dollars thinking that we're getting something for free is much more than when we actually paid for the music because we're being manipulated to buy things. You know, we're all paying these subscription things. We're paying for the cable. We're paying for the data plans. Why are we paying for that? Imagine these pipes, these massive pipes, all the, you know, all the things we're getting for free. So we're like, oh yeah, I'll pay for that cable bill. And yeah, I want the new high speed plan. And I'll want... Nobody's thinking about the fact that something's coming, but what's going? All of our data. How come on the other end, the receivers of the data, who obviously are the biggest, fattest, richest fish in the sea now, this is the Facebooks, the Googles, you know, all these big data companies that are collecting all of this data why isn't it th them who's paying for the pipes, paying for the data plans, you know? It's like uh, the infrastructure bill to get, you know, high-speed data to every place in the country, that's all well and good. But why are our tax dollars paying for it? When the data that we're paying with, data is now a currency, we're paying with our data every time we listen to music on YouTube. Well, guess what? That data is not being taxed as income. They are turning that into a fortune. The richest companies, absurdly rich. Amazon, you know, they're a huge part of their business is because of data. So the data is a currency. It's not being taxed. It's another way in which we're paying. You know, all those things that are free that we used to pay sales tax on, that sales tax is not going into our schools, our communities, all our hospitals, our firemen, our roads, our whatever. And on a, on a federal level, that income, that income that they're getting, that massive income in data isn't being valued and taxed, you know? So, so now we're all, you know, 
paying for, you know, this, this, the poverty of our whole economy, we're paying for it <laughs> because there isn't enough tax revenue. Well, gee, golly gee, I wonder why. <laughs> it's because the, the biggest currency in our economy is not being taxed. It's like, hey folks, wake up, you know? So, so you know, the, the way I see it, and I've been watching it for years as a musician, you know, watching when this whole thing happened, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors and we're all so excited to get all this free stuff and, you know, be in our little worlds and, you know, that we are missing the big picture. So anyway, I sound like probably, you know, like I'm off my rocker with this stuff and I, I, but I am up to here with it. Really. It's, no, you don't. You sound like an advocate and your transparency is packs a huge punch. Telling folks how much an album like this costs to make, letting them actually sit with that. And the idea that free is this word that excites and entices, but that the in fact the sort of ephemeral nature of it means it's this sort of slippery fish yeah. as you say. Yeah. It's not free. It's not it's not free and it's it's and it's not just a well. It's not free because it's having a bad effect on uh, effect on our children. Yes, that too. That also is hugely costly. But just in rot gut dollars, you know, just black and white dollars, it's expensive. You know, <laughs> I and and as far as having all the music in the world at your fingertips and everything, I. When, you know, when I was in school, I always tell students, you know, when I was in school, we had a handful of records or we'd go to the library. There was one phone at the end of the hall. We didn't have computers. We had our books and then we went to the school. We had our stereo. We, everybody always went to school with a stereo and with their handful of records that, you know, they could manage to pay for. And then they'd go to the school and practice. And we talked at dinner and the conversation was wonderful. And we talked about music and we sparked each other's ideas and we shared things and, you know, and it was such an alive time in terms of being human. We were all so connected. And when we listened to music, we sat there in the dark, listening again and again with the needle, nothing distracting us because there was nothing to distract us. I think that's why vinyl is starting to um, hit. Because I think that the very act of putting that needle on the record, that physical connection to the music, already it connects them to the, the reality. You know, it's almost like you saying the reality of what a record costs, but the reality of what music is. And in that moment, the vibration. And I think th that they're much more apt to sit and listen. And it's a smaller bite too, one side of a record. You know, it's, it's, it's a small bite. It's not a sea of music that you end up always doing other things while you're doing it. You look at the record jacket, you know, you get absorbed. I don't know. I think there's, there's a reason people are attracted to it again. Yeah, it's digestible. And we're, we live in information overload, as you say, on the, on the topic of coming back to that which is perhaps more contained, more peaceful. If we look at our natural world, that side of the record, I listen to Sanzanin and 
I, am I pronouncing that? Yeah, correctly? well, yeah, I, I don't even pronounce it. Sansanin, I they Sansanin, yeah, yeah. Okay, Sansanin. It's the opening track off of our natural world, and so it brings you into this different headspace, different musical space, and I literally weep. Maria, and it's interesting because you were talking about Ben Mondra being on this album and sort of back in the band and what he brings to the sound of the digital world, um, but what he brings with that same electric guitar to creating these sort of soundscapes, mm -hmm. uh, obviously paired with your writing, and it, it does. It basically, I listen to it and I start to cry oh. because it feels like this balm and this tonic, which is what your prettiest music does and does so well and it's the same manipulation that i'm very happy to open myself up to that i get from a lot of film scores yeah. and it brings me onto the topic of the idea of balance especially in jazz the idea we have tension and release and you need both to have a fulfilled complete experience but too much of the tension and people cannot kind of access it too much too much tension doesn't even feel tense anymore it just becomes i know land right yeah exactly you're just like this is an, an assault on my senses and too much prettiness at first it's enticing but it also becomes bland mm -hmm. perhaps because you're like well where are we going here when you're writing how aware are you of trying to strike that balance or does it just unfold in this beautifully perfect way no, I'm, I, I think I'm aware of it. Um, it's, you know, there has to be elements of surprise. There have to be, you know, for me, the word always is inevitability. The music has to have a sense of inevitability. Well, there's no inevitability if everything just gives you what you expect. Inevitability also comes out of surprise and out of, you know, this feeling of question and then answer, you know? So the, and, and for me, I think a big part of it is har harmonically things moving. Now, it's Sansan, and part of the reason I started with that is the first side of the album, you know, it's it's very intense and goes all these different places sonically and harmonically, I guess, too. And then Sansan is just eight chords over and over again till the end of the piece, and they just hold. And then the improvisation, it isn't even really interactive, a little bit with Jonathan on the brushes and then Gary Versace on, on accordion. Um, and the and the improvisational role has become even bigger than in my earlier albums, in my music, largely because over the years, the the players have developed such a way of playing and connecting to the music, and and not just playing a solo, but really playing in context of the music. That I enjoy this the music as a collaboration, you know, with them.
A thank you note to the folks who keep the Jazz Session alive and kicking, namely our Patreon members over at thejazzsession.com join, and also the Respect Sextet for the theme music. If you enjoy this podcast, remember that you are more than welcome to rate and review and subscribe to it. Tell friends and family members about how much you enjoy it, because maybe they're not aware that it's out there and you'll be doing them a favor and they can head on over and get all these conversations in their ear holes. If you'd like to follow The Jazz Session online, I'm at Twitter, at Jazz Sesh, and on Instagram and Facebook, at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube channel to which you can subscribe if you want to see video excerpts of my conversations with this season's guests. Now, back to the show. So my final question is, we'll come full circle, Data Lord's Pulitzer Prize finalist, two fantastic Grammy Awards. What does award recognition or recognition in general mean for you at this point in your career? Wow, that's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Let me think about that. Um, it's re- first of all, you know, validation is always really nice, and the awards mean so much, and and it's an incredible thing. And the and the Pulitzer um, finalist thing was really quite a shock and amazing. But um, you know, also, you know, I think. You know, you, you can't be f- too focused on that stuff because there's so much great music out there that never gets a single award, you know? So it's, you know, you can't sit and say, oh, well, this means, you know? So, it, but it, it, I'll tell you what, it means a lot in terms of um, for the world out at large. The biggest game changer in my music was when I won my first Grammy because suddenly when you win a Grammy and um, people, you know, in, in other people's eyes, it's like, oh, you're something, you know what I mean? So it's that the Grammy award has that, that stature to it. The Pulitzer has that stature to it. And, you know, but, you know, it's, yeah, the, the albums and my, this one, it got on a lot of, you know, year end best of the year, whatever lists. And, you know, I'm just grateful for it. You, you know, you set out and you make music and you don't know if people are going to like your music. And, you know, there's been many composers where their music wasn't appreciated till after they died. So I'm very, very lucky in that way. Um, absolutely. So I'm, I'm just thankful for it. Well, the recognition is deserved. I cannot wait to hear what you're going to compose next. And if people are smart, they'll pledge on artist share so that they can be privy to your fantastic behind the scenes stuff and we'll put all the things we've spoken about in the show notes and also you have a slew of tour dates in jan feb 2022 yeah it's starting it's starting to it's starting to and there's more there's going to be more there so yeah if people keep an eye on the events things are opening up hope that there's no crazy more variants and all that oh my lord yeah touching all the wood maria thank you so much for your time thank you you're a delight thank you it was great to see you and amy klobuchar's book okay. may you finish it this summer thank you <laughs> thank you
A massive thank you to this week's guest, Maria Schneider. Maria's latest album, Data Lords, is available online wherever you get your albums. And you can find out more information about her upcoming tour schedule by heading to her website, mariaschneider.com. I will see you next week for more conversations about jazz, life, and everything in between. Take care and thank you for listening.